All right, good morning, everybody. We, uh, we are in a series called Ways to Freedom, and it's based on the Ten Commandments. But what uh, most people don't know is that God first went to the Egyptians and asked them if they wanted a commandment. And they said, what's that? And God gave them an example, thou shalt not commit adultery. And they said, no thanks, that would ruin our weekends. God then went to the Assyrians and asked them if they wanted a commandment, and they said, well, give us an example. He said, thou shalt not steal, and the Assyrians said, no thanks, that will ruin our economy. And then God went to the Jews and asked them if they wanted a commandment. They said, how much? What's the cost? God said, it's free. They said, we'll take 10. So that's how it all happened. (laughs) Come on, man. I can make fun of myself. I can make fun of everybody else. I was reading an article in Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest, what if the Ten Commandments, what if God had texted the Ten Commandments to Moses? That looked something like this. Number one, no one before me, seriously. (laughs) Don't worship idols or pictures of yourself, Facebook people. No OMGs. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. No work on weekend, Saturday for now, Sunday later. All right, you know how that goes if you know anything about the Bible. How about this one? Parents over shoulder, okay. Your mom and dad are cool. <laughs> Honor mom and dad. Don't kill people. Anybody know this one? Big wet kisses only with your mate. That's talking about adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie, especially to your best friend. Don't ogle your best friend's mate or ox or donkey, mind your own business. (laughs) Now, I had to really ask some of the younger guys what that stuff meant, and it took me a while. I feel much more comfortable with the Hillbilly Ten Commandments. Hillbilly Ten Commandments go like this, ain't but one God, honor your ma and pa, no telling tells or gossiping, get your hide to Sunday meeting, ain't nothing come before the Lord, no fooling around with another feller's gal. No killing except for critters. (laughs) Quit your foul mouthing. No swapping your kinfolk stuff. Don't be a hankering for it neither. I like that stuff. That's a language I can understand. (laughs) So we come to the Ten Commandments, but you're never truly going to understand them or even embrace them until you get this whole thing about God as a loving father, not the big bad cosmic boss, who desperately wants you to live within these parameters because in this given created scenario, you live within these parameters, you're going to get the best chance for good living. I mean, the world's going to throw a couple of curveballs at you, yes, but if you get outside these parameters, think about it. If God did create everything, then he knows best how you can operate in it. He created the world and he created you. You were hardwired to live a certain way. You get out of that hardwiring, there's a short circuit, Disintegration starts not only in community and environment and society, but in the deepest parts of your soul. But there has to come a time in your life when you actually begin to trust God, that he has your best interest in mind. We said that God wants to prevent the disintegration of the individual and society, so he gives us his ways, W-A-Z-E, the roadmap to live life. Now, I want to take a look at theft. Thou shalt not steal. I want to do it from two angles. The angle of society and impact on the individual, what that means for your life. The first part, the the impact of theft on our society is easily seen. The World Economic Forum tells us that corruption is now 5% of global GDP. 
that the cost of bribes each year is $1 trillion. Internet theft costs the consumer $1 million a year. And most of us have no idea about the amount of money that goes toward things like burglar alarms or insurance costs or theft prevention. You have no idea how many of your tax dollars actually goes to policing theft and thieves. Or have you ever considered the reason you have to pay such a high price for consumer goods, especially at the supermarket, is because the owners have to somehow make up for their inability to stop shoplifters. Somebody ultimately is going to pay, and it's usually you and me. So when you look at blue-collar crime, uh, it's easily seen, easily, easily quantified. Somebody breaks into your house, somebody enters uh, your domain, they steal your car, they steal your stereo, your baseball card collection, your ATM. By the way, one of the reasons you feel so violated when somebody breaks in and steals something that belongs to you is not just because you've lost something that belonged to you, but the Bible tells you that God hard, hardwired into you this desire uh, to earn, to work, and then this kind of keeping sense that you have. that This is what God has sent my way, so I am the caretaker of this. And when somebody steals something from you, they've taken something from you over which God's given you the authority to take care of. And so there's some kind of a, a internal uh, disintegration when somebody violates you in that way. Again, blue-collar crime is easily seen. Imagine a pastor of a church in San Dimas, California, who parks his car out on the street because he's up in the office working late at night. Somebody comes and steals his golf clubs. I mean, Matthew 12 says that's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there's no forgiveness. <laughs> Doesn't really say that, but we feel violated when somebody takes something that belongs to us. Blue collar stealing, yes. White collar stealing is not so easily recognized, and yet that's really what's disintegrating society. The reason the fabric of our society uh, is disintegrating is because of things like theft of time. When an employee does not give his or her best work to the employer. When you're not giving the employer a good value for his or her money. I learned this the hard way. Uh, I told my dad, I'm 16 years old, I want a car. He said, fine, you think you deserve a car at 16? I said, yeah, I can drive now. State of Tennessee says I can drive, so I need a car. He says, okay, you meet me down here at 5.30 in the morning, we'll go get your car. I woke up early, met him down in the driveway at 5.30. He took me down to White Supermarket and introduced me to the produce manager. He said, this is how you're going to get your car. You're going to work for it. You're going to earn money, then you can buy your car. So I took the job. About two months into that job, I was standing out in the parking lot chatting up a young girl, which is what you do when you're 16, to try to get a date. And the manager came to me, he knew I was a Christ follower, and he said, Jeff, why are you stealing from me? I said, well, I haven't taken, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I'm paying you to work. And rather than inside working, you're out here talking to this girl. You're stealing from me. That was a very eye-opening experience for me, that I was getting paid for services, and I was not rendering. You know, the Bible talks about this a lot. My friend Clive Rye Rui and I were in Auckland, New Zealand uh, last year, and we were on... American time, so we go to this cafe. The cafe is not opening until 6 a.m. It's like 5.55, but it's cold outside. We don't want to stand and wait, and she had the door open. So my friend walks in and says to the, the lady behind the, the barista, says, you mind if we come in for a while? It's just three minutes till you open, and it's cold outside. Man, she was extremely rude to us. And what did we do? We left. We went to another cafe. Now, she didn't lose anything. Because she's not the owner. 
She just stole money from the owner. And if she does that all the time, she's costing the owner money all the time. He, probably does, he or she probably doesn't know it. That's, the Bible calls that theft. When you don't do good work, period. When you create a product that doesn't do what you promised it would deliver. When you work at a job to get a paycheck, but your heart's not in it. You're just there for the paycheck. But you have a cavalier attitude about work and about productivity. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Colossae, in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So Christ followers are supposed to, to be a light in a world, to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. They're supposed to be model citizens. They're supposed to never steal from the people who employ them. You say, well, they don't pay me enough to get another job. It's not right because you think somebody doesn't pay you enough to steal from them. It's called stealing. There are other ways to steal. Don't pay your taxes. Don't pay your debts. Pad your expense account at work. Manipulate your logbook so that it appears you drove more miles than you actually did for the company. Or if you work for a company you know is involved in wholesale stealing. Uh, one of my favorite movies is based on the novel by John Grisham, Rainmaker. Two of my favorite actors, Matt Damon, John Voight. The movie is based on a true story in Memphis, Tennessee of a company called Great Benefit Insurance Company, and they have a policy. And the policy is this, when anyone makes a claim, categorically deny it, routinely, even if, it's, even if, if they deserve to file a claim and deserve the income, refuse it right up front. And the reason is given because hopefully they'll give up thinking that they don't have a valid claim or that maybe they'll get tired and just go away, tired of fighting, or maybe they'll just forget all about it. One of the young women who's employed by Great Benefit asked the question, why are we doing that? The response of the company was, it's good business. It might be, but it's still stealing. And in the movie, a young man, Donnie Ray, actually died unnecessarily of leukemia, waiting for the approval of the insurance companies to begin his treatments. He could have lived. Lewis Smedes, one of my favorite authors, says this, we know, you and I, when a thug snatches a woman's purse, he's stealing. We're not sure whether a creative ad writer who woos money from people with smooth and seductive lies is stealing, but he is. We know when an embezzler steals from a bank and falsifies computer data, he's stealing, but we are not sure whether or not a corporation that bribes an official to get a deal without the lowest bid is stealing, but it is. He goes on to say that we know that when somebody breaks into your house and takes your television, he's stealing, but we're not sure a company is stealing when it exploits a poor country's resources, but it is. He finishes by saying, one yearns for the day when a thief is not an executive in a suit. You think that the Ten Commandments aren't for the well-being of the individual in society? I just read an article this past week about Los Angeles. The economic review of our great city, in fact, this entire state, says that if 10% of the stealing that was going on in Los Angeles stopped tomorrow, just 10%, There'd be billions of dollars pumped into the economy, this horrible, horrible debt that we're in because politicians keep passing legislation that will get them elected rather than what is good for the people of the country or the state. If we would stop all the under-the-table transactions that happen in Los Angeles, the article says the debt in California would dissipate and there would be jobs and opportunities, a vibrant economy, and far less homeless. And that's only of 10%. 10%. Our economic issues are never for the lack of resources. It's the theft of resources. That's in Africa or America. Everywhere. Hold, oh, wait a minute. Are you saying that the breakdown of the state or any entity 
has to do with four little words, thou shalt not steal? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But, 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 but what if just 10% of those who call themselves Christians stopped stealing? What if just the Christians paid their taxes, stopped engaging in what they call shrewd, when it really is another word for unethical business practices, then we're told that even if 10% of the Christians did that, there'd be a catalytic change that would be contagious. So before we clear out the house in Sacramento, maybe we ought to clear out our own house. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I got you, but what about, what about the impact of theft on the individual? Now listen, when I start on Monday writing a sermon, I never know where it's going to take me. I set out with a general text and theme. I knew this week it was thou shalt not steal. That's about all I knew. So wherever my study and cross-reference in Scripture takes me, that's where the sermon goes. I learn something every week. I've been doing this a long time, and every week, you can always tell by my passion. If I just go through the motions, I already knew it, and I'm re just, re just regurgitating it. But if I learn something this week, the, the, the more new information, the more I learn about Scripture and about God's Word, then I get ex all excited about it. And then I come to you with, man, look at this. doesn't mean I have it in order, and it doesn't even mean I'm not violating it in my own life. It just means, man, I'm convicted. Well, this is one of those weeks. Because the Apostle Paul reformulates the commandment, thou shalt not steal, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4. This is eye-opening. He says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So do you hear what he's saying? Paul assumes that everything you have comes from God. He assumes that you have the choice whether to work and to earn and become a caretaker of a larger amount of resources that God would bless you with, or that you can be lazy and not work at all. Now, I know there's a lot in between. Let's just stick with those right now. He says, once you acknowledge that you are to work, your primary motivation, your primary motivation for working and earning is not to spend it on yourself, but to give it away. He assumes that you know life is temporary, it's all going to burn, go to custard anyway. So the investment of your life, the reason you work, the reason you earn is not to have bigger houses and nicer cars. It's to first take care of your family, and after you have your needs met, not necessarily all your wants and desires, but your needs met, then your attitude is one of radical generosity. This is amazing if you think about it. The first four commandments, and we have to keep doing this in the series, the first four are concerned with the way you and I relate to God. The second six are concerned with how we relate to each other. But the first four are the basis to the second six. So every single one of these commands, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt, thou shalt honor parents, thou shalt not kill, are all based on the assumption that your relationship is right with God, that you know you've been created in his image. Therefore, once you learn about God, it's going to impact the way that you treat others. If you don't have it settled in your mind who God is and who you are, you have little to no chance in treating others the way God expects you to treat others. Now, stay with me for a moment here. Retired pastor Tim Keller tells a story of a great meeting that took place in Glasgow, Washington, uh, uh, Glasgow Scotland. As the mayor of the city, he addresses the priests and pastors, okay, of Scotland. And here's what he said as he looked out over the crowd of priests and pastors from all denominations, Catholic, Protestant. He said, you guys spend a lot of time debating theology. 
and the nature of God and the nature of man and these deep ideas and concepts that most people can't understand. But what people really need from you is not more debate on the discourse concerning the nature of God and the doctrine of God, the nature of man. What we really need from you, he says, can you help us to love our neighbor? Can you help us to get along, to treat each other with kindness and respect? That's what we're looking for from the church. Now, this statement could be on any opinion poll in the United States and any place in the West. Here's what we're being told. Here's what guys like me are being told all the time in our meetings. We don't care what you believe about God. We don't care what you believe about man. We don't care what you believe about the Bible. We just want you to help us with social problems. Really doesn't matter about what you believe in all those other things. Just help us respect each other, show kindness, maintain integrity, forgive each other, and love our neighbor as ourselves. So to the modern man, first four commandments don't really mean anything. Love God, serve God, no other idols, no other gods, no taking God's name in vain, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. For them, those four are just kind of incidental. But the second six are the, really the ones that matter. Now, do you see the irony yet? Okay, thank you. They asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, Jesus responded in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus takes 637 precepts in the Old Testament and narrows them down to two. Love God and love your neighbor. What's the point? You can't love your neighbor till you love God. You can't be in a right relationship here horizontally until you're in the right one vertically. Because until you understand what it is that God actually did for you, there's no way that you're going to treat others with dignity and respect and you're going to fight racism and discrimination. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have moments in your life when you do that, but it won't be the posture of your life. When Paul wanted to motivate the fellow Christians in Jerusalem and Macedonia to give to those who were hurting, what was his motivation? He recapitulated the gospel in 2 Corinthians 8. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. So what's Paul's argument? The only way I can get you to help people, for those of you who have resources to help those who are in need, is to remind you what God did for you. He was rich, and in his wealth, he became poor, so that in his poverty, you would become rich. Until you understand truly that God did that for you, you're not going to do that for anybody else. The problem in our country, folks, the only hope truly for America is Jesus, really, is Jesus. Because until you've had your heart transformed by him, there's no way that you ever have hope of not just stepping on everybody to get ultimately what it is that you want. Here's the problem. If I meant this, just humor me for a second and then I'll finish, okay? Just for a second. I would like to meet the mayor. And I would say, Mr. Mayor, on what basis should I treat people with respect and kindness? On what, where's your ultimate point of reference? Mr. Mayor, you don't believe in God. So your worldview is incoherent. You don't believe in God, yet you want me to treat people with dignity and respect. Wait a minute, if there's no God, if there's no God, and you and I are here and there were, there were oceans and oceans of time before us, and there will be oceans and oceans of time after us, why shouldn't I step on everybody to get what I want? Why not? I mean, that, make, that, that to me would be more logical, right? If there's no day of accountability and there's no, and there's no ultimate purpose or meaning to our lives, we're just a bunch of chemicals, why would I be nice to anybody? Now, stay with me here. Somebody will come to me and I get this complaint all the time. Pastor Jeff, you should, treat, you should talk more about the environment. 
And I always like to enter into this little dialogue. First of all, I agree that we need to treat the environment better. But they will say, you should treat the environment well. And I will say, why? Why? I just want to get everything out of it that I can. Just to play devil's advocate. And they'll say, well, you, you should leave it in good shape for the next generation. And my response is, what if I don't care about the next generation? I won't be around to know that they're angry with me. I'll be dead. And when you ask the dead how they feel, they feel nothing. So isn't it logical then that I would just do everything that I can? If there's no moral objectivity here, if there's no ultimate point of reference, it's what, I think the wisest thing, pragmatically speaking, would just do, do whatever I can to get as much as I can from everybody that I can and step on everybody I can to get it. So when you tell me to treat the environment well and you tell me to treat my neighbor well, where is your ultimate point of reference? Tell me why I should. Why? And they'll say, well, you just should. <laughs> That's not objective morality. That's just subjective. And my feelings could differ from your diff- feelings. If, if there's no God, we are so insignificant we compared to the oceans of dead time before us and the oceans of dead time after us. So whether or not we live nobly or violently makes not one whiff of difference at all. Nothing. The Bible tells us, however, that every one of these commandments Don't kill, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't commit adultery. To love your neighbor as yourself, all of those things are based upon a fact, not a feeling. And the fact is this, you are not a bag of carbon-based chemicals, but you're made in the image of God. That we are many models of God's nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. We share in his personality, his creativity, his rationality. And as such, every human being has a tremendous and viable dignity that must be respected. That's why Jesus said... When you do something to somebody, you do it to God. Surely as you've done it to the least of, me, least of these, you've done it unto me. Now you say, what's your point, Jeff? Thank you for asking. If you truly know God, you will relate to your neighbor in such a way as to cause him to flourish. You won't step on him. You'll actually be for him. Why? Because God is for you. And as a result of God being for you, you're for your neighbor. And until people come to know God, there is no way that the posture of their life will be to treat their neighbor well. Oh, they might when it's convenient, but when it comes right down to it, man, war. My goodness, we can't even get along at football games or baseball games. Now, this is what our leaders don't get. Your your relationship to God governs your relationship to everyone and everything else. And sometimes that's why we're able to do amazing things. Now, I've used this story before. Let me use it again. Until I find a better one, I'll just keep throwing it out there. The number one story still requested today from Reader's Digest is a story about the life of Edith Taylor from Walter, Massachusetts. She married a man, the love of her life. She had a lovely family. Everything was going well in the story, and then her husband was called to war. He had to go to Japan. He wrote her religiously for months and months, and then suddenly the letter stopped coming. Her 12-year-old son wanted to know why her heart was broken, had he been killed, what had happened, and finally out of the blue one day she got another letter, and the letter said, no matter how I say this, it's going to break your heart, Edith. I've fallen in love with another young Japanese girl. I'm not going to be coming home after the war. Just devastated her. Story goes on to say how her son came to her and said, just because daddy doesn't love us, does that mean we don't love him anymore? Please have dad sent us photos of his new wife and children as the years go by. And he did. And with every letter that came and every photo, Edith's heart was broken all over. And then in an ironic twist, 
Years and years went by. She received another, another letter from her ex-husband describing how he had contacted or contracted cancer. He had days to live. And he had the audacity to ask Edith, who lived in her own poverty with her own kids, if he could scrape enough money in Japan to buy airline tickets, if he could fly his new wife and kids to New York, and if she would raise them and take care of them and help them to stand on their own two feet. She did. She did. She raised the children of a betrayed love, taught them to stand on their own feet, and culminated her testimony by saying this, in that dark, dreary, hellish situation, I thank God for the ray of light and hope to share some of the love of Christ in this very dismal setting. How on earth could you do that? Only one way. Your relationship to God is so powerful that it influences everything. Your relationship to everything and everyone and every situation. Now, stay with me as we go around the corner here, okay? I want you to repeat a poem that I have written after me. It's cheesy. Let me let you know that. But it's the way I need to say something to you, okay? Here we go. Repeat after me. My pastor has issues. Man, usually I can't even get you to repeat anything, and you do that one with vigor and passion. Okay, you want to play that way? All right, let's do it again. My pastor has issues. My pastor is weird. My pastor's son has an impressive beard. But I listen to my pastor with considerable glee because I believe that he tells me what is best for me. Now, here is how God opened my eyes. And let me just tell you right now, let me tell you right now, do not think this is going to be another tithing sermon, okay? This is not a tithing sermon. This is about a generous heart, period, okay? Here's what I learned in Scripture. In Ephesians 4, 28, Paul says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Here's what Paul is saying. There are two ways to steal, through wrong taking, which we just spent 20 minutes on, or through wrong keeping. Through wrong taking or through wrong keeping. The main principle behind the command is that you don't just steal by taking what doesn't belong to you, but by keeping in your possession what doesn't belong to you. You remember the old saying that goes, when is a door not a door when it's a jar? Yeah, I know it's cheesy. I know it. When is a thief not a thief? When he stops stealing? No. He stops being a thief when he becomes radically generous. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Paul's saying that you're either stealing or you're radically generous and there's no in-between. And I find that incredibly convicting in my own life. The Bible teaches you've not stopped being a thief when you stop taking. You're a thief when you believe that everything you have comes from you. You're a thief when you believe that you are the landlord and the owner not the tenant and the manager. You're a thief as long as you see everything that you have. You're the boss. You're the owner. You're the landlord. 
And that has to change. And the reason you're called a thief is because you're claiming that something that belongs to somebody else belongs to you. Did you hear that? You're a thief because you're claiming that something that belongs to somebody else belongs to you. The Bible is clear, very clear about this. From the beginning to the end, all of what you have, not some, not most, not a little bit, all of it, and all of it means all, belongs to, originates from, and is ultimately owned by God. You are a trustee, not an owner. You're a broker. You're a manager. Every inch of everything that you have, every little bit that you possess, is something that's been given to you by God as he shifts his resources so that you might take care on his behalf according to his priorities. Psalm 24, the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 1 Corinthians 4, now we're in the New Testament. For who makes you different from anyone else? In other words, why are some wealthy and some are not? Some are more wealthy than others. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So you pray to God, God, open this door. Give me this job. Give me this promotion. He does. And then what do you do? You start treating it as if all of it's yours. John 3, 27. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Now let me show you how this works. Let me Eye-opening, convicting, incredibly convicting for me. Because all my life I thought, well, you just tithe and give a little offering and that's fine. No, this is not about tithing. It's not about offering. It's not about giving to the church. It's about a disposition of your heart in general out there. Okay? So let's say you get hired to be the groundskeeper right here at CCV. You're in charge of this whole facility. You got, you got that big ring of keys, you know, where you have like 30 keys, and they're greasy and oily, and your wife wishes you'd leave them at the office. Because you can get into any door. You got power. You can go anywhere you want at any time. And to a degree, you can allow people in and not allow people in. You can tell the kids to get off the grass because maybe it's hurting the grass somehow. You can, start, you can start operating as an owner rather than the manager and suddenly think that you're the boss of everything around here. And you can start telling people, no, I'm not gonna let you use that classroom. I'm not gonna let you, and I'm not gonna let you use the kitchen, and I'm not gonna let you play soccer on the field. Amazing. You're not the owner. You can't go and sell the gardening equipment. You're, you're the manager. You're not the owner. Point is, at, at any point, you start acting like you're the owner, you're a thief. You're taking or you're living as though something belongs to you that belongs to somebody else. God puts this so clearly in Scripture. Malachi 3 says, everything you have is mine. So the very best of everything I've entrusted to you goes to what I'm concerned about, what God is concerned about. What's God concerned about? Deuteronomy 15, 7. If anyone is poor among you, in any of the towns of the land of the Lord your God is giving to you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't refrain from giving to the poor. It's not your money anyway. It's mine. Give it to what I'm concerned about. People who are poor. God's people. Also, God's house. Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, I don't apply that to here. I'm just simply saying that God says, I'm concerned about my house. Take care of my house. He's also saying, I'm concerned about my work. 2 Corinthians 9.6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So there's an assumption that the most important endeavor in your life is to sow seed. And anytime seed is used in the Bible, it's in reference to helping people far from God come near, to plant a seed, to grow it, and it takes root in their heart. So basically, God says this, everything you have is mine. 
and I'm an incredible, generous God. You get to spend so much of it on yourself, he says. But remember, it's not yours. I'm the owner, and I want you to be radically generous toward God's people, God's house, and God's work. And here's the clincher. He says, if you don't, you're a thief. That's hard to take. In Malachi 3, he uses that exact word. He says, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how do we rob you, God? In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. So God says, I'm not going to be an enabler. I've asked you to bring this in. You don't bring it in because you think it's yours. So I'm closing the windows of heaven and there are no more blessings going to be poured out on you. You know, it'd be one thing if God said to me, Jeff, you know what? You're not radically generous. You're stingy. You're tight. You're selfish. I could deal with that. He doesn't say that. He uses the word thief. If I think that everything I have belongs to me and that I'm asked to give it away, you could just call me stingy and leave it at that. But if everything belongs to God and I'm the manager and the owner asks the manager to distribute it the way he says he wants it distributed and I refuse to do it, I'm a thief. I'm operating as if what is belonging to someone else belongs to me. We're too busy saying, mine, 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 and God is saying, no, 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 his, his, his. This is so hard to take. When you start to realize that being a thief is not simply taking what doesn't belong to you, but it's keeping something that you don't own and using it. Look, look, isn't it true that it's far easier to spend somebody else's money? Come on. It's easy to spend. I got a friend, Katie, who works for the PGA Tour. Here's what she does. They fly her all around the world to every PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, and Champions Tour event. She stands on the first tee, and here's her job on, on, uh, on the first day of the tournament, which is usually Thursday. She has this long list. And by the way, they're looking for more people to do this, so if you're interested, you might want to pop me an email. But she has this long list, and she says, Mr. Tiger Woods, what driver are you playing today? What, is the, what type of ball are you playing? She records all this information for the tour. She makes not a lot of money. She makes somewhere around $1,500 a month. But, but when she goes to these trips, everything's paid for. So basically, she spends no money. They pay hotel, food. So she goes and works on the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, does whatever she wants to do before they fly her to the next tournament. Now, if you know somebody else is paying for all this, you don't care... You don't care if the light is left on at Motel 6. You ain't staying there, <laughs> are you? No, 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 no. Somebody else is paying? You're going to the Ritz-Carlton, aren't you? Yeah. You go out for a meal, you're not going to Mickey D's. No, I don't think so. You're going to the finest restaurant you can find to have the best meal you can find. It's far easier spending somebody else's money. You're not going to Uber. You're going to rent a car, and it's going to be like a Corvette or something. If there are no questions asked, I mean, you're going you're gonna to live high on the hog. Why? Because it's not your money. It's far easier to spend somebody else's money. God is saying, all of you need a paradigm shift. This money in your pocket is not yours. It's mine, and I'm telling you how it's to be dispersed generously to my work, my house, and my people. It's like God says to us, man, I put you in charge of the garden. Now you think you're the owner. You think you're the boss. So that the Bible tells us that everybody falls into one of two categories. You see everything as his, or you see everything as yours. If you see everything as yours, you're not going to be generous. But if you really see everything as his, you're going to be radically generous. There's no other place to go. Before I finish this, 
You say, well, Jeff, I, I'm sorry, but I just don't believe that's true. Because everything I have is mine, I've worked hard for it. All right. Then why did you pray that God would open doors and give you opportunities and grant you a job and give you favor? Who gave you breath to live? Who gave you strength to work? Why do you pray to God to give you good health so that you can be able to work? Why do you pray that God gives you favor in your business? Why? If it, if it all originates from you, what are you doing praying to God? Forget him. Leave him out. Just do it on your own. The Bible says everything that you have comes from God, belongs to God. And somewhere along the line, you forgot that everything you, were, everything you have originated from someplace else and has now been leased to you. Now, what the Bible basically says is this. If your thinking's right, you're a radically generous person. We're not talking about tithing to the church right now. We're talking about just as you go to coffee clutch and you see someone in poverty, we're talking about, I don't know, we're talking about somebody that's in need in your neighbor. The Bible says, if your heart's been changed, you are a radically generous person, period. Now, here's why I can't help you. <laughs> it goes back to what we said a few weeks ago. I can't help you. I can't change your heart. And you know what? You can't man I can't manipulate you in this. I can only share the message, but I, I can't coerce or manipulate you in this. Actually, you can't even coerce or manipulate yourself in this. If you go out here and think, man, I'm gonna, you're going to talk to my, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be, well, you'll do it for a week, but gone. You can only do this when your heart's been changed and you see the world as it really is. You say, well, if that's true, why do you keep preaching these messages? You know why I keep preaching these messages? Because I'm going to treat everybody like a believer until you realize you're not. You say, man, I don't have that heart. Well, that's because Jesus has not transformed you. Which means the gospel to you might be a loophole rather than a way of life. It may be an insurance policy for you just in case there is a God rather than an intimate relationship with a God who has placed his spirit inside you to transform you from the inside out. So if you're sitting there thinking, man, I'm, this is not me, I've got to get out of here. Well, of course you are. Of course you are. But if you're sitting there thinking, man, he's right. It's, I'm good at it, but I'm not great at it. And you're praying to your, God, help me be better. Oh, you know, you know what? That is a test of authenticity. You've just authenticated who you really are. Your thought right now is giving you away. Robert Murray McShane said, I fear there are many hearing me who now know they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally and not begrudgingly requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. What's he saying? You're not going to change by saying, oh, I need to be more generous. And you're not going to change by your pastor preaching a 40-minute sermon to you. You ought to be more generous. <laughs> no, that's McShane's point. He says, to give largely and liberally and not begrudgingly requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. So what do you need? A new heart. I can't give that to you. I can help kickstart it. All you need to do is stare at this for a large amount of time. And remember what this stands for. He who was rich became poor so that you could become rich. You had no hope. You had no future. This world is all there is, but now you live for a kingdom that is unshakable. And once that dawns on you, and you receive this Christ into your life, you'll never have to hear another sermon on radical generosity. It's a byproduct. 
You know Jeremiah and Gabby? Jeremiah is one of our worship leaders. His young wife, they just had their first child. That kid's got the biggest head, man. It's like Charlie Brown. <laughs> That's why they put a hat on this kid, man. <laughs> That's okay. I was like that, and so was my son. So this is Gabby. and Jer- Love these guys. Jeremiah, since he came to our church, our worship has changed, and so many good things have happened. Gabby, his lovely wife, man. She did a lot of trips to Kenya. She loved that. She spent some time in Zimbabwe. Most of you know that she was diagnosed with cancer, and it's, I guess it's been about six months ago, and it's a very, very aggressive time, and every time we got a report, it was worse and worse. When the doctor operated on her, he came out eight hours later sweating. He had never seen so much cancer. Reports kept coming back. We've been praying like crazy, and I'm thinking, these guys are going through this. I mean, can you imagine how bad that is? I mean, been married just over a year or so, so Jeremiah's got this wife and this wife's got a new child and she can't be with the child she can't feed the child the way she wants to because of the chemo, because of everything she's going through jeremiah told me that they the doctor said it, they were supposed to get the report two weeks later and it ended up be, they put it off even more and i'm thinking oh boy and then we got a text that she doesn't have to do radiation anymore the cancer's not there And so I, I, thought, I thought, man, God is so good. We, Pastor Phil went over and prayed for it. And of course, when Pastor Phil prays for you, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Just warning you. But they were at our a dinner this past, this past uh, Friday night. And I saw her come in. And I thought, oh, this is great. She's here. And I saw a look on both their faces that I recognized because of 30 years of ministry. And here's what the book is. Uh oh, they get it now. They get it that the most important thing in life is your wife and your husband and your kids and your neighbors and your family. You can see it in their eyes. How long it will last? Probably until the next tragedy. And that's why I say the only way I could help you start the transformation of your heart is if God pulls the rug out from under you and you got nothing and you start to really see what matters, then you'll become radically generous after he restores you. I don't want to pray that prayer for you. I read a quote this past week. Oh, man, Andrew Carnegie, a man who dies rich dies disgraced. What's he mean? You should leave nothing on the field. It should all be given away. Thou shalt not steal, wrong taking, wrong keeping. And I think when we stand before God, God's going to say, hey, all those resources I shifted your way, how'd you use them? For some of you who live just above the poverty line, if you read the New Testament, the woman who gave the widow's might was the most generous person in the New Testament. It's not how much you own. It's not how much you give. It's the percentage of your life that models radical generosity. God help us. Thou shalt not steal. Father, thank you for the power of your word. I pray right now that our eyes would be open, that for a transformed heart, there is a 
byproduct of a radical generosity. When we, once we understand what you've done for us, that he who was immeasurably rich became staggeringly poor so that we could become so wealthy that it would be unfathomable that one day we step into a kingdom that will never end in relationships that will never end a place where there is no death a place where honor respect given to each other and to our God where he will be our God and we will be his people I pray that you would do what you need to do in our lives to open our eyes to what this world what our life is really about that we would invest in something that truly matters and that we would lose our sense of narcissism where everything we have goes onto ourselves. And that we would see people as being created in the image of God to be loved and to be valued. May we be that, at least as a church first, that we'd get our house in order for the people of God and then to our community in Christ's name. Amen.